Yeah, the only reason I have a camera is because the university early in COVID was just giving away tons of stuff. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, they can do that. Right. So I just signed up for all of it. And they sent it all over. They said that they would ask for it back, but then got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, lost in the COVID shuffle. That's true. So I got a $20 camera out of it. Oh, yeah. They can afford that. <laughs> I would think so. You get enough Department of Defense money. Yeah, got enough of my fucking money. Yeah, exactly. And I got a fucking grant. so it's nick and levi back on the intervention for another entry into our palestine zionism and empire series steve is absent again um we think the idf might have got him not sure (laughs) but he, he he continues to fail to show up for these episodes so something's going on maybe he's a he's a plant maybe maybe we'll check in on him though i'm sure he's okay but i don't know i think we can just get right into it so just to kind of sum up where we left off last time so in that last episode in the series we focused heavily on the era of the un partition of the former manite of palestine and the aftermath though we really didn't dive deeply into the nakba And that is still coming, we promise. We did look hard at the roles of both the Soviet Union and the United States in the creation of the Zionist state via the United Nations and how the relationship between those states and Israel would begin to evolve in the subsequent years. The rise of Nasser's Egypt and Arab nationalism broadly coincided with the Soviet Union beginning to distance itself from the Zionist state, while the U.S. began to grow closer to Israel as both the U.S. and USSR worked to squash the influence of Britain and Europe broadly in the region. Ultimately, we landed loosely in 1957, which we will return to in more detail in this episode. But the thrust of where we ended was the promulgation of the Eisenhower Doctrine, which again stated, and I'll quote this from the U.S. Office of the Historian, that, quote, a country could request American economic assistance and or aid from U.S. military forces if it was being threatened by armed aggression from another state. Eisenhower singled out the Soviet threat in his doctrine by authorizing the commitment of U.S. forces to, and now I'm quoting Eisenhower, secure and protect the territorial integrity and political independence of such nations requesting such aid against overt armed aggression from any nation controlled by international communism. End quotes. So now we have to keep in mind that in a few short years, the U.S. and the USSR would be confronting each other during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Eisenhower Doctrine was a grotesque escalation that would ultimately help to bring the so-called Cold War to its apotheosis. And I think it's helpful to maybe augment the nomenclature. Levi, I know you and I discussed this quite a bit, and also refer to it as the era of global class war because I think that really more accurately describes the very hot conflicts of revolution and decolonization that characterize that era. You know, we've got examples, you know, we've talked about in our podcast before, Greece, the Korean Peninsula, Vietnam, Cuba, Chile, both China and the island of Taiwan, Angola, Iraq, Iran, in addition to the very real struggles of Palestinians to protect what they had and attempt to gain, regain what was taken from them, right? So the world is just exploding with all these. And I think the conversation we were having, and that it might be helpful to kind of at least augment it with that nomenclature, 
is that I think just referring to it as the Cold War kind of plays into that common sense of, well, this was just kind of a standoff between the Soviet Union and the U.S. and really, I think, does a disservice to a lot of these real bloody conflicts that were going on, serving as proxies in some cases for this broader conflict or Cold War. And what's really lost when we talk about the Cold War in terms of the common sense and popular culture is really the third way movement entirely. That's kind of been erased from any memory of the Cold War. We purely remember the USSR and the United States. There's no concept of what the third world by definition actually meant outside of the first and the second world. So while I'm a little bit hesitant to change language, especially around something like Cold War that is so well understood, it is a troubled language. So I think even in that today, we might go back and forth between phrases like Cold War uh, and the global class war. But where necessary, we're going to be using even more specific language like Arab nationalism or just the specific interests that were going on in terms of imperialism, decolonization. Yeah. And like I said, just to repeat, I think it helps to augment, not replace, right? Yeah. I agree to that. But to get back to it, so Israel, as we have already indicated, would feature prominently in a crucial geographic region of these struggles. The so-called Middle East was simultaneously a former stronghold of Britain and France, a neighboring region to the Soviet Union, and an oil-rich prize already being sized up by Uncle Sam. Case in point was the CIA developing its regime change manual in Iran with the overthrow of Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh and the Iranian people had had the audacity to assert control over their own natural resources and were paid back by the U.S. with the installation of a brutal puppet in the Shah, an intervention which its effects still reverberate through geopolitics today. And just to bring a point on that, in terms of the previous statement on the Cold War, the way that this was framed with Mossadegh was that he was a Soviet agent. Uh, the history has not borne that out in any way, shape, or form. He was a nationalist. He wanted what was good for the Iranian people. He may have held some socialist beliefs, or he may have come from a socialist cadre, but he was in no way a dyed-in-the-wool communist. In all ways, it just points to he was a decolonialist. He was an anti-imperialist. And that gets tarred with the the sort of sweat of communism during the Cold War. Well, and it's the same as what happened in Guatemala. And really, Guatemala and Iran, I think, have to be understood together, albeit in very different regions of the world. But those are really the first two where the intelligence agencies of the U.S. would define their kind of attitude and again, their manual for regime change in dealing with these. And the Guatemalans got painted in, with the same brush, right? They're Soviet allies. And while they were friendly and could trade with the Soviets in the Eastern Bloc, it didn't mean that Moscow was dominating these regions, right? So, Yeah, there's actually very little within Mosaddegh that he believed that the United States was going to be so hostile to his government. I mean, he was duly elected. He figured that the United States would just be another trading partner. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a complicated history that deserves its own sort of investigation. But just for the sake of this, it's just good to understand that these anti-colonial struggles are not defined very well by the, the terms of the Cold War. Right. 
Now, and the reason I think we're diving into this so much, because I think it has to do with the way we're kind of framing this and that Israel's development during this time has to be influenced by these ongoing world events as well, as well as internal conflicts. And we'll get into that a little bit too. But anyway, and just to kind of restate what I just said, as I will in the coming paragraphs as well, but Israel, its relationship to its neighbors and dispossessed Palestinians and the very character of its political economic order would have to be resolved and decided in this context. So to fully kind of set the stage for this episode and really into the next, the movements of Arab nationalism in Egypt, the ALN in Algeria, Baathism in Syria, the National Front in Iran, again, the list goes on, all proved to be a rising threat to Western dominance in a region of growing importance for fossil fuel extraction during the economic boom of post-war reconstruction. During the Suez Crisis, which will be the focus of today, the state of Israel worked to position itself as a co-equal among the former colonial masters of the region in order to assert its right to colonial domination over Palestine, with the Second Arab-Israeli War serving as a major advancement in this project. Israel ultimately played ball with and gained respect, and also weapon tech, from the waning imperial forces of the UK and France, and promises of the same from a burgeoning American empire, and this coming after demonstrating its power in the conflicts that we'll talk about today and in the next episode. While the Eisenhower Doctrine could have immediately been interpreted as a negative for Israel, coming as it did on the heels of Israeli aggression against Egypt's national sovereignty, it would ultimately serve to bolster Israel's power in the region. The Eisenhower Doctrine's real purpose was to check Soviet and British influence there and serve as a weapon against anti-imperialism broadly. Obviously, the British are excluded from that category. Israel, as we'll see, revealed its willingness to participate as an ally in the Western imperial order. As such, it would be recognized as a Western power threatened by the communist forces of decolonization under the flexible imperial logic of the doctrine in the years to come. Something that's even more complicated and doesn't fit well into the way that we're understanding this is sort of the early movement by Israel within the UN to posit itself as an anti-colonial state that this was the creation of a decolonized Jewish population. Uh, and there's nothing beyond in that beyond rhetoric. It was the state of Israel trying to assert itself in any way possible to any audience it could get. Uh, and the UN was very susceptible to that language. And a sort of aside, as Nasser came to power in Egypt, the state of Israel actually sent over representatives believing that this more westernized, anti-religious, anti-monarch figure might actually be more amenable to creating peace with Israel. Over time, that very much proved not to be true, and it was shown even in that first instance, where even though Nasser is willing to meet with the state of Israel, one of his immediate claims is on behalf of the Palestinian people, which was a non-starter for the state of Israel. In spite of claiming itself to be an anti-colonial decolonizing state, it was actively participating in settler colonialism. Yeah, and I think that is something in terms of the pan-Arabic movement's relationship to Palestinians and ultimately Israel's relationship to Palestine that really has to kind of push. And I, I want to be careful with that language of have to, but like if they're going to treat the Palestinians this way and continue to try to dispossess them, which like I don't think at any point there was many indication that anything real would happen in the direction to disprove that 
like then any movement towards integrating the Palestinians would almost automatically be hostile towards Zionism. At least the specific Zionism of the state of Israel as it existed at that point. Sure. I mean, there are strands of Zionism that we talked about or strands of the creation of of a state of Israel that didn't have to rely on the subjugation of Palestinian people. Right. Right. And I guess that's, you're right, to clarify. I'm talking about where we're at and what happened, you know, in the foundation and the Nakba and everything. That's kind of just the reality of where we're at. Yeah, the ball is already rolling. And I think this segs nicely into where I want to go before we get back into the geopolitical events of 1957. But I do think it's worth getting into Israel's own development during this time a bit. Israel as a capitalist imperial operator, as you're saying, Levi, was not necessarily envisioned as a necessary outcome or even a desirable one among many of the founding fathers, the immigrant populace, or even the veterans of the first Arab-Israeli war. Just a Quick point of clarification. We're going to be using language of first Arab-Israeli war, second Arab-Israeli war. These wars all have various names. I know among Israelis, the first Arab-Israeli war is called the Israeli War of Independence. For obvious reasons, we're not going to be calling it that. Among the Palestinians, this is just considered one portion of the Nakba. Uh, And we're not going to be using that language either, just because it's kind of confusing for the sake of the podcast that we're creating today, because we want to talk about the Nakba holistically. And it might be a little confusing if we refer to the specific portion, this war, as anything other than the first Arab-Israeli war. For sure. I think it just bears repeating, though, that from the perspective of the Palestinians, the Nakba was not a discrete event. It wasn't continuous and really, I think, ongoing now event in many ways for Palestinian people. Right. It's the sort of statement that the Korean War had never ended. For Koreans, mm-hmm. it's still ongoing. The conflict is still simmering. Right. But anyway, to get back to it, economically, the cooperative farming model of the kibbutz was extremely prevalent during this time. They did, of course, rely upon development of stolen Palestinian land, but a great deal of governmental effort early on was expended in promoting this cooperative model. But, you know, as I'm kind of alluding to, to characterize these as purely socialist economic formations, I don't think is correct. Yeah. And in fact, I think we may have even mentioned this on a previous episode, but the initial desire was to set up individually owned and managed farmsteads. But the abject poverty of many of the Jewish immigrants who just lacked the capital to make this kind of investment really forced the state to sort of organize these, the state being the Jewish agency and then the state of Israel, because there was no viable alternatives and they needed to have a working agricultural system being created. And it also was a means of bringing these immigrants into the concept of the state in a very secular way. Yeah. And I mean, and that segs into my next point, because at this point in time, the state is promoting rapid immigration into its territory. Really too rapid to even manage adequately. Um, I think we can explore in a little bit more detail, but I mean, you're talking about bringing people into essentially holding camps as they're kind of processed and integrated into these states, you know? So this whole process of managing thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from, you know, North Africa, the Middle East, Europe in particular, really took a great deal of state involvement, state interventionism, right? So to really 
call this project at this point purely prototypically capitalist, I don't think is very correct either. And it's tough because they're in this process of forming the state. So the government has to be involved. But there are some impulses and characteristics that I think live outside what we would say, well, this is just the free market kind of taking care of things. Right. I mean, the theories and the lens that we're coming towards this is meant to be a lens. It's not dictating what's going to happen in any single situation in history. We can see larger developments that fit into these patterns, but the state of Israel really is doing something incredibly, I guess I don't want to say unique because that fits into sort of Israeli exceptionalism, but they are doing something that's, at least on the face of it, rather admirable. They're providing the promise of a state to a people that have been persecuted or have faced persecution at the hands uh, of Israeli intervention in foreign areas. But we'll get into the complicated nature of that on the episode about the Nakba. Yeah, for sure. And But I do think a lot of this, a lot of what we're talking about really comes as a result of the fact that there were extremely influential socialist and communist elements within the state at the time, with many folks there having roots in the European working class and revolutionary movements. The dominant party, Mapai, led by Ben-Gurion, was the labor party of the nation, whose ranks had been bolstered at this time by integrating the Communist Party. They were undoubtedly influenced by socialist theory and history. Ben-Gurion himself, after all, mistakenly fancied himself as a figure cut from the same cloth as Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Now, these tendencies would ultimately come into conflict at various fronts during the formation of the state. Again, as we said, the all-too-rapid immigration of Jews into the fledgling nation would be a central feature, and we'll, again, explore some of this more deeply, but I do want to call out that Tom Segev's book, 1949, The First Israelis, it's, I don't know, I don't think the guy's a Marxist or anything like that, but he does kind of present a lot of these formative struggles in a very dialectical, antagonistic kind of analysis, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing about a lot of good history is that the field is very influenced by the dialectical method, if not by the politics that it imbibes. So you see that a lot with just good historians. They understand that things are complicated, even if they don't follow a conclusion that we would agree with. And I think to just pull back on something you said earlier with the Mapai party and Ben Gurion imagining himself as a sort of Lenin type, I think it's important to recognize that the state of Israel at this point really is positing itself as a secular state. The notion of a Jewish religious recognized as like following Jewish religious law or following Jewish religious practices, really, it's not on the radar right now as part of the construction of the state. It's purely the construction of a functioning state. But I mean, those are the kind of questions that really needed to be answered at this time. And that really did come as a result of trying to integrate all of these people of various different religious backgrounds, economic backgrounds, political ideologies at a very, very rapid pace, right? So, I mean, questions were inevitably coming up, right? So what should the Jewish state's position on education be? Should it be secular and labor-centric, as was probably envisioned by many of the European founders, or more religious and orthodox, which was, you know, influenced by that that position would have been influenced by various regions that people were coming from, right? Yeah, just to add a little bit more context to that. So the way that that was ultimately settled would become incredibly impactful 
for the history of Israel. So the relatively minor, minor party called the National Religious Party, which would be one of these sort of fringe parliamentary parties, joined the Maypai coalition in order to create the state of Israel. And their main concern was creating a religious Zionist outlook for the state of Israel, something that we now recognize as dominant in the state of Israel. But at this point, they're a minority party. Right. The reason they joined the coalition is so that they could have influence over the Ministry of Education. So they found and held the belief that education was foremost and central to the state as a religious state, even though they've compromised and stated that they're going to work with the state as a secular state. And this would end up being to their great benefit as the sands of uh, time sort of change and the state of the government shifts away from the statist, almost pseudo-socialist into something that's more expressly neoliberal, and they become the sort of kingmaker party, and they switch their allegiance and allow the party that is now Benjamin Netanyahu's party to take control, and this being in the, I believe, early 70s. I mean, not to get too far afield here, but the formulation of that project is a bit reminiscent of what we're seeing going on in this country right now. I mean, the right is heavily focused upon education capturing school boards and they've got almost a i mean not almost a, a real grassroots movement in in many cases to influence the trajectory of education because they recognize the power of it right and obviously the neoliberal order is powerless to do anything against it but i mean it just goes to show that our enemies recognize the power of education and what that means for the ideology and the character of a state and how its people respond to certain certain actions. So And that's part of what why we think what we're doing here has some value. Yep. Absolutely. But um to get back to it, so again that education, a big question. There were radical left and right wing elements of the military. That had to kind of be resolved as the nation's direction as a whole was kind of considered, right? How were immigrants from various regions to be managed given their diverse and unique backgrounds? How would they be integrated and put in the service of the economy and state building? Right. And so, and as I mentioned earlier, how would they be moved from objectively deplorable conditions of immigration camps? I mean, these were all things that were going on at this time. And like, this isn't to like absolve Israel in any way in terms of the actions that they would subsequently take. It's just to kind of accentuate the point that this was a very dynamic point in history for this burgeoning state. Yeah. And I think it's important to note all of these possible contingencies that things happen the way they happen, not because they had to, but because material conditions provided the means for them to happen. And then the motivation happens from below that happens from actions from above and below. And part of our larger thesis in terms of why we do this is to understand that these things didn't have to happen the way they did, and they can always change, right? Right. None of this is predetermined in the past. None of this is predetermined for the future. For sure. So, but again, just to reiterate kind of the broader framing here, all of this was not being resolved and answered in isolation. This was all occurring during the Cold War. And the state at this time was very much dependent upon foreign aid and sponsorship for its survival. And as the era of global class war sharpened class and economic system antagonisms across the world, 
it really would have been nearly impossible, I think, for Israel to maintain its alignment as, quote, neither capitalist nor socialist as Ben-Gurion initially established. Because by 1957, Ben-Gurion would be forced to admit that while the state did not want to officially take any side in the hostilities between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the state of Israel was decidedly anti-communist. And again, like we ask this question now, if you're anti-communist, how can you claim to be neutral? Quite a puzzler. Yep. It's really not when you get into it, is it? <laughs> Almost as though it's like a, a narrative that the state is spinning. Yeah. Anyway, but all this is to say is that I know we kind of glossed over the Suez crisis in Egypt in 1956. And I think that's why I ultimately decided to return to it because it is a pivotal moment. Again, it's a moment amidst a lot of other movements and events, but I think this kind of serves as a good symbol and one that is easily recognizable by everyone, right? So it it really comes down to with the lines that we're talking about, this kind of shows where those lines are going to be drawn, especially with respect to the state of Israel, their relationship to Palestinians and their neighbors, right? So as we mentioned in our last century, it was not the U.S. on the side of Israel in this specific case, but the U.K. and France. These are the waning imperial powers at the time, European imperial powers at the time. Both of these nations had had at one point in history and not too long ago an extremely lucrative material interest in the Suez Canal, which had been quote-unquote lost when Nasser and the Egyptian pan-Arab movement nationalized the commercial artery on July 26, 1956. How dare they? I know, right? I, that's that's why I have to do that lost thing in quotes, right? Because it's like that is like a framing that people will use, and it just avoids asking the question. It's like, well, why was it ever considered theirs from the beginning when it was always in Egypt? <laughs> yeah, why why did France and Great Britain own a waterway through Egypt, and mm-hmm. how did they quote unquote lose a waterway in another country? Happens all the time, buddy. Yeah, right. Yeah. What are you saying? Gibraltar should go back to Spain? <laughs> so anyway, even more critical for France than, you know, its share in the Suez Canal, which to be in, in reality was dominated more by Britain. But more critical for them was that Nasser and the Egyptians were now supporting the Algerian National Liberation Front in their struggle to repel Francophone imperialism. And it is worth noting at the time that the French government was led by the Socialist Party in their efforts to overthrow the ALN. Now, I know, and Levi, maybe we can get into this a little bit. The French were in shambles at this point, coming out of the World War II era, right? There was the kind of the legacy of the Nazi collaborationist Vichy regime. What was the state going to look like? But I do think it's important to note that the ostensible socialists and communists were kind of at the head during a critical point of decolonization in the world. Yes, I think that's the point that needs to be made, is that even if the government itself was in shambles and would be collapsing within a few years, the communists and the socialists were ostensibly the head of this poorly functioning government. So at the very least, you could say they, were, they had a hand in the decolonization movement, and it was not a steady hand. Yeah, and it echoes now into how we analyze, I think, the social democracy of Europe when we state that it is still predicated upon European imperialism. And I think this is an indicator of that. At least on the surface of it, maybe someday we can do a deeper dive into what that really looked like. But 
I think that's as good a reading as we need for this. For sure. But in any case, the decimation of these nations' economies, these nations being Britain and the UK, during World War II had created the conditions for decolonization, and the colonized were really pressing their advantage on many fronts. And while the U.S. would become ever more hostile, and that is an understatement to these movements, they first and foremost had to remove competitors for world domination before implementing their own system and repurposing the French and British as vassals. That said, in Egypt in 1956, the interests of Israel and European imperialism converged, which I think needs to be taken as a signal of Israel's true national character, or at least a leading indicator that strong internal right-wing forces were tipping the scales in a reactionary direction. Theodore Herzl's vision, after all, included the Zionist state serving as a, quote, vanguard of culture against barbarism. And I'll leave it to you, listener, to suss out who are the cultured and who are the barbarians. Right. And just like our last episode was more of a transition, this is still in that same period. So the United States is striking a language of anti-imperialism. But as we know, you don't overthrow the elected government of Iran if you're truly anti-imperial. I think the winds are, people are picking up what direction the world is going towards. Israel, for its part, coveted the Sinai Peninsula for continued settlement, state expansion, and unimpeded access to commercial waterways. It also viewed pan-Arabism as a threat to its existence. Here was an ideological framework which could truly unite the dispossessed Palestinians and their neighbors in a way not possible when so many of the states, such as Transjordan, Iraq, and others, had been themselves held enthralled to Europe via accommodationist leadership. So this sphere of pan-Arabism is real, but it's not a single movement across all of these places. So a place like Transjordan was actually quite hesitant to embrace pan-Arabism as it was a strong central monarchy that looked a bit more like what Nasser had just toppled rather than what Nasser was trying to build. But this movement, nobody really knew where it was going. And the Israelis and certain other groups, including UK, France, and the United States, were really terrified at the possible power of this movement. And in the same breath, the Soviet Union was actually looking at this movement with positive anticipation that this could actually be a strong anti-imperial, anti-Western movement. Yeah. And like, it's not to say that the Soviets didn't have their own material interest. And I think this gets into how we would look at China today, you know, and how they behave with on the world stage. You know, it's not to say that like the Soviets wouldn't have benefited from a positive relationship with Mossadegh and Iran. They would have. But the way they went about their business tended to support national self-determination and sovereignty in a way that just was never envisioned or countenanced by the Western imperial powers. Yeah. To make a uh, somewhat controversial take, I think the Soviet Union was just more comfortable with self-determination in these regions than the United States ever was. Is that controversial? <laughs> I mean, Shouldn't be. Only if Ben Shapiro is listening. That's right. But, you know, to, to get back to it, to, to put this in kind of, I think, the blunt language that we are, but fear of a popular anti-imperial ideology of self-determination united the UK, France, and Israel as colonial powers with much to lose. The difference between the resource extraction, which motivated the UK and France, and later the US, compared to the settler colonialism, which motivated Israel, 
amounted to a distinction without a difference, at least in the eyes of the colonial powers and their victims. And I think that's the point that you were making, right? Is that like, this is an ideology that's burgeoning. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily at this point taken hold, but the potential for it to topple the accommodationist leadership in Transjordan can be felt and would be felt in Iraq in 1958, I believe, after all this, which we'll touch on again a little bit later. But it's the potential that's there. So additionally, and as we're getting at, the communist bloc is beginning at this point to provide arms and support to Nasser after having provided the same to Israel during the first Arab-Israeli conflict. So the Soviets at this point, with the rise of Nasser and pan-Arabism, really can no longer be considered a staunch ally of Zionism. So again, we see that relationship fading. There's no discrete end to it, but... These are the conditions that are evolving and developing. And it's a material interest of Israel being a small state in the Middle East, just south of the Soviet Union, that they're not really interested in making horrible relations with their massive neighbor to the north. So they're not intentionally antagonizing the Soviet Union. But at this point, there are no warm relations anymore. They're not receiving weapons. They're not getting help. They're not getting advisors anymore. It's practically cut off. Right. But to get back to it and to really detour into an important but quick aspect that I think we ought to discuss, but I think we need to talk on the relationship between Palestinians and pan-Arabism, at least at this moment. As we have discussed here and in the past, the fragmented and underdeveloped nature of the Arab nations was a key factor in the Nakba and Palestinian dispossession by Zionists. And I think, you know, that is something that is borne out by Palestinians' writings their general sentiments on what may have caused this to happen, especially in the wake of, you know, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the British mandate, et cetera, et cetera, right? So again, they were keenly aware of this historical deficit in terms of unity. So many Palestinians welcomed the rise of Nasser in Egypt and the promise of pan-Arabism to unite the Middle East and Northern Africa against imperialism. Egypt had even briefly united with Syria in 1958 as Baathism began to take hold. And with respect to the Palestinians, it did work to validate these hopes because in 1964, they actually called for an Arab summit, a pan-Arab summit. And a result of that summit was the creation of the Palestine Liberation Organization. So this is an organization explicitly dedicated to the Palestinian project of regaining their state, their territory, their land, their homes, right? Now, ultimately, pan-Arabism would not deliver for Palestinians or for the region broadly on a permanent basis, but I think it's easy to see why, at this moment, it would be embraced by Palestine and also feared by colonial powers, including the Zionists. Yeah. I mean, they did everything they could on the intelligence, on the military level, to quash pan-Arabism. I mean, Nasser's face was on the cover of magazines around the world. Time. As... Yeah, he was famously on the cover of Time, right? And you can read as many awful, terrible profiles of the man as possible because he was being watched extremely closely by the CIA. So anything remotely negative he ever said was going to be blown and published way out of proportion. Whereas his more radical rhetoric and his calls to arms didn't get nearly as much headline. Yeah. And... You know, he would be tarnished with the same communist label as so many of these people. And I think I I need to do 
more research on my own to understand Nasser and Pan-Arabism broadly. And I do think, you know, that movement, given those states' position and time in their history, were very much characterized by almost a class collaborationist streak, right? Because you have a national bourgeoisie present, you have radical socialist present, you have a peasantry seeking for, you know, seeking for land and wealth on their own right, you know? So again, and this is, I mean, honestly, but these are the kind of movements where most of the <laughs> world's communist movements, successful communist movements have come from, right? So while, you know, again, when we see the word communist and socialist thrown out dis- disparagingly by the U.S., I mean, I think we just need to dismiss that kind of framing of these people out of hand and really dive into, you know, what their ideologies were actually about. And there were, again, some socialist elements and tendencies. But again, it's a really complex stew at this point in time, given the history here, right? Yeah. I mean, Nasser, to begin with, like we said earlier, really tried to plot out a third way. He wasn't that interested in uniting as staunch allies with either the United States or the Soviet Union. Worked really closely with Indonesia at this and China at this point in time on that project. Right. And this is one of those major lost opportunities where we could sit and think about where the world might have gone had the United States not been quite so belligerent in their dismissal of the third way. But I don't know how useful that is right now. Yeah. I mean, if you want to understand what happened, plug for the uh, Jakarta method by Vince Bevins, because it'll disabuse you of any notions that capitalism is any less violent than what you've heard about communism and socialism. Or any less ideologically driven. Right. Because market-wise, the United States probably would have done better to just open these markets with Egypt, but that wasn't the aim. No. But in any case, to get back to it, the threat to all three parties, that being France, the UK, and Israel, posed by Nasser and Pan-Arabism in the geopolitical situation for Israel, led to the development of the Protocol of Sevre, I think. <laughs> I don't know if that's correct at all. But Severus doesn't sound right either. No, this is why we need. This is why we need Steve. That's right. We need our European. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this document was ultimately the result of a secret meeting between French, British, and Israeli diplomats. The latter of which was led by Ben Gurion himself. The French, obsessed with maintaining control of Algeria, were ultimately the key in bringing the parties together. The British and the Israelis were, of course, not far removed from the years of British control of Mandate Palestine, so distrust between the parties was palpable. Same might be said of France and Israel. I mean, the Vichy stains were still on their hands, but they quickly washed those away with their relationship with Israel, as we'll go over. Right, yeah. I mean, ultimately, they're able to set aside their historic qualms to deal with their immediate desires to crush these anti-imperialist sentiments and movements. And to Gurians in the state of Israel's larger project, they're really trying to establish themselves as states. They're trying to release some of these animosities they held towards these larger colonial, what they see as partners at this point. Right. So, I mean, as such, when this meeting happens, Ben Gurion really comes out kind of swinging to establish himself as a position to kind of make these kind of claims, which we'll get into in a second here. But he really comes in with this mindset that, you know, I am dealing on an equal footing with these people, right? 
So he comes to the table with this quote unquote fantastic proposal, which he claimed would lead to increased regional stability for the great powers. So the European powers would ultimately recognize Israel as an equal in their shared imperial motivations, but both the UK and France considered Israel as a pawn in their larger extractive plans for the region. Nevertheless, Ben-Gurion may be willfully unacknowledging of the real situation, pressed forward and presented his plan to see what they could get. So I'm going to quote an Arab Jewish historian, Avi Shalem, to quote him, quote, Jordan, in Ben-Gurion's view, was not viable as an independent state and should therefore be divided. Iraq would get the East Bank in return for a promise to settle the Palestinian refugees there and to make peace with Israel, while the West Bank would be attached to Israel as a semi-autonomous region. Lebanon suffered from having a large Muslim population, which was concentrated in the south. The problem could be solved by Israel's expansion up the litany, thereby helping to turn Lebanon into a more compact Christian state. The Suez Canal area should be given an international status, while the Straits of Tehran and the Gulf of Aqaba should come under Israeli control to ensure freedom of navigation. A prior condition for realizing this plan was the elimination of Nasser and the replacement of his regime with a pro-Western government, which would also be prepared to make peace with Israel. Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, you can see, I mean, he's coming in as like a kingmaker in this in this region as a truly I mean, this is just this is the same behavior that we see from the imperial powers when they come in and draw arbitrary lines upon maps with no consideration for real life people living on the ground there. Yeah. I mean, this is like the Sykes-Picot agreement. Right. In his mind, this is. The same three, only Israel has replaced Russia. Yeah. So again, these are the kind of things that we want to tease out to kind of show the direction and the mindset, the direction that it's heading and the mindset of the state's leaders at this point in time, right? So ultimately, the plan would be rejected by the French and the British for its blatant overreach and a general lack of economic benefit to the colonial masters. And that means a lot if the British are accusing you of overreach. Well, and that's the thing. It's it's not that like they're opposed to this kind of action on principle because they've done it throughout the entire world, right? So it's not that they're opposed to that. It's just that this plan ultimately does not serve their interest as much as it does Israel in this case. Right. So, it, you know, but again, it just kind of captures that vision. And it bears emphasizing, as we always do, that Ben-Gurion was not some supreme individual bending an entire nation to his will. But again, he did represent a dominant political current in Zionism as one of its most capable political actors. And really, I think, someone who is widely viewed as the seminal figure in the founding of the state. But again, he represented a movement. Right. A movement that had detractors, but none that were able to act on the same level as him. Right. After a few days of diplomatic sparring, the final draft of the protocol was promulgated and defined by seven major points, but can be summed up as follows, essentially. Israel would launch a large attack on the Suez on October 26, 1956, with the intention of also taking strategic positions in Sinai along the Gulf of Aqaba to ensure, quote, freedom of navigation. The other partners would be made aware of the attack over several days and respond by sending a force to occupy the canal as the Egyptian and Israeli conflict was settled. The Egyptians would be 
basically given an ultimatum where basically they would have 12 hours to accept the British and French occupation of the canal. And if they didn't accept it within that time frame, the British and the French would engage in a more large scale military action against them. Right. Finally, it was understood that if Jordan intervened with Israel on Egypt's behalf, Britain would not support the Jordanians. And though the Palestinians are not mentioned directly in this plan, it still furthered Israel's aims with respect to that people. Empowering Israel in this way as an imperial agent almost automatically lessened their stature on the world stage as a nation. And this came to the benefit the Zionist project. Right. And this sort of option that they're giving Nasser to concede, it's just not possible with the entire way that Nasser has constructed his administration. To concede that point would be the end of his administration, because like all of these people, he is not a person capable of bending the nation to his will. He's actually a member, a head of figure of a much larger movement. Absolutely. So that kind of sets the stage and the events really do follow that in some way before the U.S. and the USSR get involved. But before we kind of get into that, um, and this is almost an aside, but I think it's worth looking at. Um, the IDF's documentation on Operation Kadesh, as it's known in Israel. Interestingly, and perhaps not totally unsurprisingly, the broad outline of the operation and the results described match fairly closely to any critical accounting of Israel's actions. However, I think the key difference is the framing and justification for Israel's decision to collude from the beginning. So from this IDF account, In 1955 to 1956, Israel's borders were constantly attacked by Fedayeen terrorists recruited by Egypt and operated from the Gaza Strip. Some Israeli reprisal attacks against Egyptian targets caused a dangerous rise of tensions between the two states. And I know that's really brief, but I think there's a lot there to unpack. Exactly. The notion that Israel is being attacked is central. There is no, this has to be a defensive maneuver because they're dealing in a world order with recognition of the UN, on top of the fact that just no modern civilized state ever engages in offensive war. Right. Yeah. And to that point, it's like we should really, I mean, our goal for people listening to this podcast would be to be able to, for someone after having heard this, to see something like that out in the wild and ask some really critical questions, right? Because that could inform a lot more about the situation. Like, for example, you know, maybe there were people attacking Israel's borders and there, there probably were formulate, but, but why would they be coming from Gaza? Right? Like why, what might Israel's invasion of Sinai in 1948 have to do with Egyptian hostility towards the state? Right? Like these things don't just kind of, that don't just spring out of nowhere. There's, historical basis for these actions like these terrorists don't act for no reason you know if you want to get really spicy you could say the same thing about 9-11 they don't just hate us for no reason they hate us for our freedom yeah but it's the same kind of thing and it absolves that framing absolves israel of any blame and it's just taken as the common sense right to take it even into the american uh trajectory i mean who drew these lines that is representing Israel that is under, quote-unquote, attack by terrorists. I mean, if you take that language and posit it back to the 19th century United States, I mean, this is 
the savages on the borders terrorizing the settler colonial movement towards the West. I mean, why are these people here? Why is the United States there? This land has belonged to these people for how many years? And all of a sudden, their legitimacy is based off of the victory in one war, and they expect everyone to sort of fall in line. How dare they fight back? Exactly. How dare they try to reclaim their land that at this point has been lost for, what, less than 10 years? I mean, to say that the wounds are fresh is an understatement, because the wounds are still fresh now. Yeah, absolutely. Literally, the ground is still smoldering. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, just to bring a modern example, just a few days ago, we have the Times of Israel describing the decimation of a refugee camp in Jenin as an act of counter-terror operations, right? I mean, you've got Palestinian men, women, and children slaughtered on the ground, but, you know, have to take care of them terrorists. Like, come on. Come right. on already. And it's the, it's the same line that every single person murdered by the IDF was a terrorist because they were murdered, right? Yep. Whereas every IDF soldier or individual injured was doing, doing so defensively, mm-hmm. right? They're always the victim, even when they're actively invading and murdering individuals in their own home. Yeah. So, I mean... I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but I did come across that IDF account as I was doing research for this episode. And as we continue to try to draw threads back to what this story means for the Palestinian people, I mean, this is just a methodology that it's nothing new under the sun. It's been used from the beginning. Yeah. And it's the it's the settler colonial playbook. I mean, it's the same thing that the United States has done. It's the same thing Australia has done. It's the same thing that South Africa has done. This is how a colony is established into its own state. Yep. It just happens that the United, the Israel is doing it a bit later than those other examples. Yep. To get back to the actual events, true to their word, the Israelis launched their invasion of Sinai. Egypt rejected the fate accompli. Again, that kind of ultimatum that was presented to them and the British and the French landed, inflicted approximately 2,700 casualties on Egyptian soldiers and civilians at Port Said, and the IDF established an occupation in Sinai as they advanced toward the Suez. And let's just pause it on that for a second. So 2,700 people murdered in the course of less than 12 hours, I believe yeah. is what it said. That's incredible that is a slaughter of massive proportions absolutely so i mean in the nature of the engagements as an act of military aggression predicated upon collusion and treachery was almost immediately apparent to the world and the tripartite that being again israel the uk and france was almost universally condemned right and i think that that abject bloodshed and horror had a lot to do with that The most significant condemnations, of course, came from the Pan-Air movement, but the USSR and the U.S., as we stated in our last episode, delivered their condemnation with the force of major repercussions. The Eisenhower administration was, of course, miffed, to say the least, for not having been informed of, let alone approved, the operative plan established in the protocol. In response, the U.S. drafted a U.N. resolution condemning the invasion, which was, of course, vetoed by the British and the French using their positions on the Security Council. But even more critically, they withdrew their protective nuclear shield over them. 
the Soviets made this action by the U.S. even more acute when they threatened to bomb London and Paris while also promising Soviet troops would be landed in Egypt to assist the Egyptian military. This is the threat that the Cold War becomes hot. Yeah, absolutely. And in a really weird way, like for a moment, the U.S. and the USSR are apparently on the same side, but for very, very different motivations. Yeah, it's kind of weird to see that the U.N. vote uh, against Israel was held up by somebody other than the United States. Yeah, imagine that. It also, just again, not to get too bogged down into it, but it's another example of like how flawed the U.N. is as an apparatus, isn't it? Right. That both of these like waning imperial European powers still have the right to basically, you know, absolve their own bad behavior. Right. It just happens that they did it to a uh, power that's specifically providing their nuclear shield and against another power that's quite willing to use nukes on their major cities. Yeah. Or at least states that they're willing. Right. Yeah. But, you know, all that said, the jig was up and the British and the French were forced to tuck tail and retreat in fear of both the lash of their new master and the forces of anti-imperialism. The Israelis, too, had to share in this defeat, but they scorched the Sinai on their way out. And it must be said that of the tripartite, Israel came out the best, at least on their terms. Israel had established itself as a player who could deal with the great powers on the diplomatic and military stage. Right, and this goes to their larger mission to prove themselves as a state in order to lure more and more Jewish citizens to come to Israel, to feel that this is a place they would be safe. And they proved to the West that they had a willing and able imperialist power in the region that they could play ball with. Their state received military training and technology from the French as part of this process, both a benefit to their mission to keep Palestinians under their thumb and a means to link their settler colonial project to the extractive colonial aims in the region of the West. Most critically, this relationship allowed them to embark on a nuclear arms program. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Israel has nukes? I, I, That's what I, I hear, I don't man. think so. I don't think so. Well, if check, they do... Check your notes on that. If they do, it's very... It creates a very tenuous situation for the region. I mean, let's hope that they don't. But if, in fact, that they did, it would be quite impactful. I love how coy Israeli prime ministers are about whether or not Israel has nukes. Because they, they like will wink at cameras and stuff whenever the question. You don't have nukes. nukes. Come, on. <laughs> come on, man! Come on. So bloodthirsty. I know. But you know, so despite this public flogging of France and the UK, Zionism ultimately thrives even in defeat in this scenario, because critically, the U.S. didn't view. Israel's assault on Egypt as objectionable on its face as a gross violation of national sovereignty, whatever they may have stated at the time. What was objectionable was that this operation had not taken place on the U.S.'s terms. Israel had demonstrated its capability as an effective ally in this region. As such, the U.S. would soon take the place of the French as the primary sponsor of military aid and technology to the state. U.S. weapons, intelligence, and ideological support would become critical for Israel to help protect U.S. interests by playing the bulwark against national liberation movements seeking to claim their own resources, but also crucial to Israel's own project of continued colonization of Palestine. And to sort of complicate this a bit, it probably would have, it could have happened earlier, the closer relationship between U.S. 
in Israel. But Eisenhower, on a sort of personal level, really took this as an affront that the French and the British in Israel would create this tripartite, specifically not even informing his administration that it was happening. And personally was miffed and prevented a lot of aid or resources going to Israel based on this personal animosity. But again, he's just one man and he doesn't stay president forever. Yeah. And I mean, we make it sound like it happens, you know, very quickly with a statement like that. And in relative terms, it does. But the growth of the relationship between Israel and the U.S. really develops over the years as the global conflicts of decolonization kind of intensify. You know, as we're getting into the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and again, as these lines are kind of drawn between the U.S. and the USSR, I think this event really sets the stage for where Israel is going to land, where they do end up landing. Again, it didn't have to necessarily be that way, but given the conditions created by historic colonialism, the resultant pan-Arab movement and Israel's relationship to Palestinians in this context, it really, really kind of influences the direction of the state in a way that I don't want to say was completely unavoidable, but the politics and the aims of the state itself would, I think, have to have been very different or would have had to have had a significant intervention to kind of change this trajectory, given the geopolitical situation. Yeah. And to give a somewhat of a a compliment to the state of Israel, and this is an incredibly backhanded compliment, but they were incredibly engaged in statecraft. They understood the machinations of international diplomacy and what they were doing with this tripartite. I mean, it really does look like on the face of it that France and the UK were using Israel as a pawn But Israel very much understood what benefits they could have gained from being, quote unquote, used in such a way. And they really do end up on top at the end of this. I mean, we didn't mention in the narrative, but the UN also places peacekeeping troops in Sinai in order to prevent the terrorist attacks, which we've already complicated here. So the UN is basically playing defense for Israel, continue harassing Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And they also get U.N. engagement on maintaining that straight as neutral, which, again, it's to the benefit of Israel against Egyptian sovereignty to have control over their waterways. So it's actually hard to see what the U.K. and the French actually gain from this entire transaction. Really, Israel comes out on top. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they gained anything. I mean, again, like I I know I use some kind of... uh, (laughs) descriptive language when talking about the relationship that ultimately solidified between those powers in the U.S., but I think it's really true. And I think it persists to this day. I mean, these states do in some ways, especially as part of the, well, I guess the U.K. is not part of the European Union anymore, but I mean, (laughs) but I mean, they do obviously have like their own agency in some respects, but like it's severely curtailed. Their structures as they, as their economies relate to the global South, are completely dependent upon U.S. imperialism and the U.S.-led global economy. Yeah, and France still has a neo-colonial relationship with its former colonies. I mean, they still use the the franc in much of Northwest Africa. Right. But I think at this point, they're no longer permitted to drop in on a colony and murder 2,700 people without any repercussions. Yeah, the U.S. has to be bought in like they were in Libya. 
Exactly. There's now a big brother on board that has to watch over. You're no longer allowed to act on your own. And that's what, to your point, Eisenhower was so pissed off about, right? Like, I don't think that, I don't think it's out of the question that the U.S. could have been on board with this at this time. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, de facto that it would have happened, because again, there was that kind of imperative for the U.S. to remove the U.K. and France's dominant influence, right? But it's not completely out of the question that the U.S. could have been part of this. Yeah, and this sort of sort of gets to the shadow aspect of what ended up being the Eisenhower Doctrine. He was way more interested in empowering the CIA and covert operations and less overt military action. And then had the audacity to fucking whine about the military-industrial complex, which he had a huge role in creating on his way out the door. I love when people throw that out. It's like, dude, it's too late. It's it's too late. Like this doesn't absolve you. Are you kidding me? No. I mean, it's great we got that language from him, but yeah, it's uh too little too late. He could have done a lot to prevent that from happening and he's the one that signed all the orders to empower these agencies. Yeah. Well, and just to kind of go back to the point on statecraft that you mentioned because I do think it still relates to what we're talking about here because, you know, we can go back to your first episodes in this series on Israel and how prevalent the notion of the state in the European sense was and how important it was for the early Zionist leaders as they established these relationships and understood how states worked and treated in the European sense. And, you know, on a really basic level, spoke the same language and what that meant. And it continues, I think, in this case, to come up as a real factor. Yeah, it's the sort of, like you said, it's the intelligence of state design. This isn't new to these individuals. Many of them, including Ben-Gurion himself, had worked as a bureaucrat within highly functioning state apparatus. They understood statecraft. They understood diplomacy. I mean, they understood military. I mean, they had a full picture of how a Western imperial developed state should act. Yep. Yep. Well... I mean, I think that about wraps it up here, unless you've got anything else on this, buddy. No, I think that's that's just the next stage. All right. Well, next time we'll march on to 1967 and discuss the deepening relationship between the U.S. and Israel during this time period, during the intervening time period. We'll also discuss the impacts of the Six-Day War or the Third Arab-Israeli Conflict on Pan-Arabism. Ultimately, as we'll see, Israel's overwhelming victory in this engagement buoyed by U.S. arms and intelligence would land a body blow to the efforts of Nasser in the, in the pan-Arab movement, and it would force Palestinians to once again reconsider how to most effectively carry on the fight against their oppressors. But again, more on that next time. You'll notice that the time periods are moving slower and slower with each episode. I think I covered a couple thousand years in my first episode, and we're now getting about a couple 10 to years at a years time. Soon. Yeah. You can just blame that all on me. I mean, I just get too deep into the weeds of shit sometimes. I'm like, oh, I can write this up quickly. And it's like, well, I can't skip over <laughs> that. Can I? I can't really skip over that. But what if we change the framing entirely real quick into something completely unorthodox? <laughs> <laughs> no, just to say this, uh, we took on a big project. We're almost in it for about a year now. I think we're coming up on a year. Yep. Which is impressive to stick to something that long. Well, we hope that you're enjoying it. As always, please share this around. Thank you for your support, and we'll talk to you next time.
Adios, paisanos. See what you mean.